Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you that we have this uh, letter of Paul preserved for us over the centuries so that we can see the things that you inspired him to write. And I pray now that our hearts and our minds would be open to hearing a message from your spirit as we read your word. And uh, may we have the wisdom and the courage to do the things that you are calling us to do. I pray this, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So this is uh, week two of our series on uh, vital truths and focus. And in this series, we are studying the first uh, three chapters of the book of the Bible that we call Romans. Um, in this part of the Bible, what we find is a discussion of some of the most vital truths uh, that make up a Christian worldview. These are foundational truths that uh, change the way we see everything else. Um, if you get these things wrong, you will have a distorted and inaccurate understanding of the world around you. These truths uh, are, are especially about God, about ourselves, and about how we relate to God. And there are no more vital truths than these. If you believe false things about God, or if you believe false things about yourself or about how we can relate to God, you will misorder your life. And these mistaken beliefs will lead you down many wrong paths. The metaphor Jesus used uh, at the end of one of his big sermons, the, the Sermon on the Mount, he, he, uh, he taught this big thing, and then at the end, he used this metaphor that applies really well also to the things that we are studying in this series. He says, this is in Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 24, Jesus said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and he's talking about that sermon he just preached, but I'm saying this applies just as much to these chapters in Romans that we're talking about. So everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So we need to be like the wise man and build our lives on the rock of biblical truth. And these chapters from Romans teach us some of the solid rocks that should be part of our foundation. Now, the biggest foundational truth that we saw last week in the, uh, the first section of Romans was that, uh, that the gospel message that is, the good news about Jesus, is, uh, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, right? In other words, the Christian gospel is universal. It is the one true means of salvation for every person who has ever lived. There is no other way. The message of Jesus is the, the good news, 
for all people. And therefore, we should never be ashamed of the gospel. We should be ready at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way to tell people about Jesus and His love and His sacrifice for them and how they can find forgiveness and acceptance and eternal life. Now, this week's truth is no less important than that, but it isn't quite as cheerful, right? This next section starts with verse 18, and the first thing it says is, the wrath of God is being revealed against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So in this section, this week, our emphasis is not on the love and acceptance and forgiveness and eternal reward. Instead, this week's message is about the wrath of God. And this is one of those truths that we, we talked about this kind of thing last week um, as one of those things that can cause us to be ashamed of the gospel. Right? This is a truth that we sometimes feel like we'd really rather it was different. We'd like to change this little part of biblical teaching. We'd rather believe in a God of love and not a God of wrath. We would rather believe in a God of forgiveness, not a God of judgment. We want a God of salvation, not a God of justice. Or those of us who don't say we're going to just change it, we say, well, okay, we're not going to change it. We believe that, but we're just not going to talk about that part. We're just going to keep that... uh, that uh, uh, in, the, in, the, in the sidelines. We're going to have headlines about eternal life and God's love, and we'll keep God's wrath in the footnotes. But here's the thing. Our gospel is not really good news without the bad news. You see, the Bible teaches us that humanity is in grave danger and needs to be rescued. Our doom is coming, and it is going to be awful. Unless a hero comes and saves us from our fate, we are in big trouble. See, that's part of the gospel message. And without it, we have an incomplete and weak gospel. And it's not just that it makes a better story that you have to be rescued out of a great danger, it's that it's true, right? We really are in great danger, and our doom really is coming. Condemnation and punishment are our fate. And this is an essential stone in the rock-solid foundation of a biblical worldview. This is a vital truth. And so, even though this part of the gospel isn't really a nice thing to talk about, we're going to talk about it, and we're going to see what this section of the Bible has to tell us about God's wrath. Because we do not only have a God who is only love. The Bible does plainly say that God is love, but He's not only love. He's also a God of wrath, and we will see that his, his, his love and His wrath are not mutually exclusive, but rather they are a, uh, His wrath is a consequence of His love. They, they fit together. 
So let's look at this section now. Uh, Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 18. Let's, let's read the first couple of verses. It says, "'The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. So the Bible begins here by stating God's wrath, and then it gives a couple of reasons for His wrath. And there's two words uh, for sin used here, godlessness and wickedness. And these, these two terms, they have kind of an over, overlapping meaning, but, but you can kind of see two aspects of sin in these two different words. Godlessness brings to mind uh, sins of a religious nature, right? So false religion and false ideas about God or the total rejection about God, are, are, those are types of, of uh, godlessness. And wickedness, that brings to mind especially all of the evil things that people do to one another, Right? So we see here an indication that, that the, uh, of sins that are directly against God and also of sins that are against other people. But we know that, in fact, God considers all sins to be sins against Himself. When we commit sins against people, God claims the right to judge those sins too. Because all people are God's people. And God loves those people. And when we sin against people that God loves, we sin against God. And so God is wrathful about all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Now, in this passage, he doesn't actually explain what is the result of that wrath going to be. Um, but we know from, from Scripture uh, in other places that the wrath of God will be completed at the final judgment. That's when everyone who has ever lived will stand before God and will give an account of what they have done. And it, it tells us this in, in the book of Hebrews is one of the places where it says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And then in the book of Revelation, we have a description of the final judgment where it says, uh, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books." And at that point, all injustice will be set right. Every wrong will be paid for. Every sin will be punished. And that is both a tremendous thing to be celebrated and also a source of fear. We should celebrate it because no one is going to get away with injustice. So rapists whose victims never came forward or rich people who were able to have their way in court and avoid the consequences for their crimes, slave owners who abused their slaves, war criminals whose crimes were overlooked in the chaos of war, 
liars who ruined the reputations of good people, false teachers who led their followers to worship themselves rather than God, none of them will get away with it. God will bring every sin to justice. And that is good. We should long for justice to be done, not out of a sense of, uh, you know, out of proportion retribution, right? But true justice. And God is the one who will bring about true justice. There will be no evidence that he does not consider. There'll be nothing that he wasn't aware of that would have changed his judgment There will be no mistakes. His justice will be perfect. But this is also a source of fear for us because we know that we're not really innocent. We might think of ourselves as overall pretty good people, but when the Bible says nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight... Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We know that there are some things that we have done that are going to be a problem. And one of the things that we're going to see over the next few weeks in Romans is that we're not going to have a small problem. We're going to have a big problem because we are all guilty. Now, you might say to yourself, but I'm mostly good. I've only made occasional mistakes, right? I've done good most of the time, so, so maybe I won't be in such big trouble. But here's, here's a way of looking at it. Try this example. What if a husband is faithful to his wife 360 days out of the year, but the other five days he's out wandering and... Would you say that husband is a faithful spouse? Why not? He's faithful like 70 times more than he's unfaithful. But faithfulness most of the time is not faithfulness. Faithfulness requires total faithfulness. And that's the way God sees sin, right? If you're a pretty good person most of the time, which that's debatable, but, uh, but we could grant that. Uh, but if you're a pretty good person most of the time, um, God still considers you a sinner. And you will still be judged for your sins despite the fact that you've been successfully resisting temptation Many times for every time you actually fall. And so, when the Bible says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people, that includes you. Now, after stating this fact of God's wrath, the Bible talks a little bit more about why God is angry. It says people are suppressing the truth by their wickedness. Sometimes we want to claim that the reason why uh, we, we, we do things wrong and we didn't is, is just because we didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. I, I didn't know that what I was doing was wrong. 
We especially want to use this excuse when it comes to sins of the godlessness type, right? If, if, if I'm worshiping God improperly or if I have false ideas about God and stuff, it's because, um, because I just don't know God. We do the best we can with the knowledge that we have, but our knowledge is incomplete, and so we make mistakes. But the Bible says no. This is not a valid excuse. The fact, according to God's Word is that people suppress the truth. What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse." See, God has revealed Himself to all people. Even those who don't have a Bible or a Christian to explain the gospel to them, how has He done that? He's revealed Himself through the created world. The, uh, the, the theological term for that is general revelation, which means uh, you know, all the ways that God has revealed Himself to people generally. And, uh, and this idea is expressed very poetically in Psalm 19. In that psalm, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And of course, it's not just the, the stars in the sky and that that, that reveals God to us, but, but all kinds of things in creation reveal different parts of the character of God and of His, and, and what God is like and, and His majesty and His, uh, as it says, His invisible qualities and eternal power and divine nature. There's a lot that we can learn about God from this general revelation, from just looking around us. Of course, we don't learn all the things that are taught in the Bible, right? God has revealed Himself much, to a much greater extent in the Bible than He has in creation. But here in Romans, it clearly states that He has revealed much more about Himself than people are willing to accept. And rather than accepting the truths about God that people have seen in the creation of the world, we have instead suppressed the truth. And the Bible is clear that we are culpable for this. All people are without excuse. Verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They claimed to be God. But they were, or they claimed to be wise, I should say. They claimed to be wise, but they were really fools. They refused to worship God and they worshiped images instead. Now, we sometimes think that idol worship, you know, worship of statues and things like it's describing here, is a thing of the distant past. It's not. Uh, it's really only the case that it's a thing of the distant past in, in parts of the world where either Christianity or Islam is the, the majority religion. In, in most of the rest of the world, hundreds of millions of Hindus, 
still worship statues, very much a current part of their religious life. Half a billion Buddhists still worshiping idols as a part of their worship today. But what about those of us who are not tempted to worship statues of mortal human beings or birds or animals and stuff? Are we safe from the sin of replacing God with a foolish substitute? No, we're not. We, too, face the temptation to think, of our, uh, to think ourselves wise and really become fools and put something else in the place of God. So we create idols for ourselves that are no less real just because they're not physical objects, right? So we're tempted to put something as our top priority that does not belong there. God deserves to be the only thing that we worship. He is the ultimate good thing that exists. He loves us more than anything else. He is the only one worthy of being our number one priority. But what this passage here in Romans is teaching is that people don't want to make God their number one priority. Right? They, they have other things that they want to worship instead. And so we exchange the worship of God for the worship of idols. Now, an, an idol can be any number of things in our lives. Um, oftentimes, they're good things that we're worshiping instead of God. Timothy Keller, um, he has a book called uh, Counterfeit Gods, and uh, you can find uh, his uh, talks about that book uh, on YouTube. I recommend it in the little workbook thing, but I'm also, for those of you who don't get the workbook, look up Timothy Keller's talk on Counterfeit Gods on YouTube. He uh, gives a list of some of the common idols that uh, we have in modern American culture, and he lists career, family, achievement, our own physical attractiveness, romance, human approval, comfort, financial security. All those things can become our top priorities and the things that are important to us. And, 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 and many of those things are fine to be on your priority list, right? You can have those things on your priority list. We should love our families. It's a good thing to love your career and to want to be successful and do well in it. Romance is a great part of our lives. But it's when we are tempted to put those things too high on our list that we get into trouble. Now, one way to figure out if you are uh, tempted to worship something else above, uh, above God is to ask yourself, what is your greatest desire? What is your dream? Um... But there's another question that gets to the heart of these issues more quickly, and that is to ask yourself, what is my nightmare? What is the thing that if I were to lose it, it would crush me? What if you lost your career? What if you lost your family and you were alone for the rest of your life? What if you became crippled so that you could no longer uh, hike and enjoy the outdoors the way that you're used to? What if you lost your reputation so that people no longer respected you? What is the thing that would devastate you if you lost it? 
It might not even be something that you currently have. It might be something that you are longing to attain to. But what if you knew you're never going to get it? Whatever is the answer to that question for you, that's the thing that you are tempted to make an idol in your life. That's the thing that you are being tempted to put above God. Now, many of those are good things, right? These are, these are things that are, it's fine for us to strive for these things. It's fine for us to want these things. It's fine for us to enjoy these things. The problem is that they become sinful when they raise above God in our affections. St. Augustine called this kind of sin disordered loves. The problem is not that we love these things. It's that we love them in the wrong order. And in doing so, we become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for an image. Idolatry without actual idols also comes in the form of just distorted ideas about God. What I mean is the kind of distortions to our ideas about God that we, where uh, we see what God has revealed about Himself, either in creation or in His Word, and we either consciously or unconsciously, we say, uh, I don't like that part of what God has revealed about Himself. I'm going to replace that element of God's character with something that I like more. And when we do this, we are creating a God that we want to worship. We're creating a God that fits our biases and desires and moral convictions, and we're rejecting God the way that He's revealed Himself to actually be. For instance, many of us are tempted to see this whole idea that God is jealous of our worship and considers it a sin to worship something else above Himself. We think that a God who would behave this way and would judge people for that that's, that's wrong for him to insist that he must always be worshipped as the first thing. He can't handle being in second place in our affections, and he judges us for that. And so we say, this isn't the kind of God I want to worship. I would rather worship a God who is understanding and kind and forgiving and and, 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 and doesn't judge us for our faults and isn't insistent on always being number one. But see, when, when we say that, we've created our own God, a God that doesn't actually exist. And you're choosing to worship this fantasy God instead of the real God. Or we say we don't like the idea that God's justice insists that He must punish every sin. We'd rather have a God who's willing to overlook the small stuff, right? The Bible says that God's standard is perfection. We want a God with lower standards, and so we invent one. And this is often done without even really realizing it. Very often, this is, a, this is an unconscious thing. We convince ourselves even sometimes that the Bible actually matches what we are thinking. And, and when, there's, when there's biblical passages that seem to, to, to say something different, we just convince ourselves and find ways around it and justify our beliefs 
and, and, and persuade ourselves that we're understanding it correctly. But God says we know better. When we replace Him with a God of our own liking, we are suppressing the truth. Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. This is a pretty big truth for us to accept. It's a tough one. All people have access to the knowledge of God. We don't all have equal access. It doesn't say that. Some of us have much greater access to the Bible and churches and Christian teaching about God and all those things. But all people have access to the knowledge of God. But we are all tempted to reject that knowledge and to replace God with an idol. That idol might come in the form of a false religion or a distorted image of God or in a non-religious worship of some other aspect of our lives that takes the place of God for us. And God holds us all culpable for that. As it says here in verse 20, people are without excuse. And because of this wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against this godlessness. So let's, let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Um, I mentioned a few minutes ago that this is a biblical teaching that some of us are tempted to want to change or, or, uh, or justify a way around it or something. Um, it doesn't seem right to some of us that God would feel this way. Why doesn't he give people a break on this? Why doesn't he allow some more flexibility in how we worship him and how we think about him? And maybe we can see why it's necessary for some sins to be punished, right? Uh, when another person is harmed, we want that to be put right. The offender must pay the penalty for the person that was harmed. But who's harmed in our failure to acknowledge God? Well, of course, the, the answer is that the primary person harmed is God himself. Although I, I would contend that the, the, the person who worships a false god also harms himself and often harms people around them, um, but God himself is harmed by the failure to give him his proper place. And a sin against God is actually the greatest sin. Think about this example a little bit. Um, if someone is unkind to their dog and treats them cruelly, we consider that bad. But what if someone treats their child with the same unkindness and cruelty? Do we consider that to be uh, the same or worse than treating their dog poorly? Well, it, it, it's worse. You know, if, if somebody is mad at their dog and they, and they give their dog a kick, we might go to that person and say, hey, man, that's not a way that you should treat your dog because, and that's not a good way to, to train them or anything. But what if a guy kicks his wife? Why is it so much worse to kick your wife than it is to kick a dog? 
Well, because your, your wife is a, is, a, is a person, and people are much more important than dogs. They're a, a higher form of life. It's, it's just a much more serious thing to uh, do harm and to sin against a person than it is an animal. But what if you kicked God? You see, a sin against God is a whole nother level above a sin against a person. The greater the thing is that you sin against, the greater the sin. And a sin against God is the worst kind of sin because God is the greatest one that we can sin against. And God will not overlook any sin. Remember what we saw earlier uh, we will all stand before God's judgment and face up to everything that we have done. And God will bring justice on every sin. Nothing will be left unpunished. And that is why the good news, the gospel message, is such good news. Because our sins against each other and our sins against God, those are going to doom us at the judgment. But God is a God of love and mercy and grace. And His justice demands that sin must be punished. And we are all sinners. So our sins must be punished. So what can a God of love do to save us from the just punishment that we deserve? He can't overlook the sin or he's not just. So instead, he can look for a substitute to take our punishment in our place. But it can't be someone who's guilty of their own sins because once a sinner pays for their own sins, they have nothing left to pay for someone else's. We needed a substitute who was perfect, who would willingly come and pay the price for our sins, who could give his life as a ransom because his life was his to give. And that was Jesus. Jesus left heaven, became a man, suffered and died, receiving the punishment that we deserved. So that when we face the judgment and our sins are revealed in the books, Jesus will say, those sins have already been covered. The punishment for those sins has been paid. And so they can be forgiven. And that's the gospel message. We are sinful people who are doomed by our sins. We will face judgment, and God will punish every sin. But for those of us who put our faith in Jesus, our sins have already been punished. They were punished on the cross. And we can be forgiven and have eternal life with God as a result. And that is a foundational vital truth from the book of Romans.
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for for, uh, bringing justice to the world, for not allowing evil to triumph. And yet, Lord, we thank you, too, for your mercy and your grace to us in providing a way that we can avoid paying the price for our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins. Amen.